Hey, hey, y'all. Cable here. This week's show brought to you by the Stillwaters Ranch in Lano, Texas. Right now, my buddy Clayton Leverett is offering a special trophy package for the 2016-17 whitetail season. It's any buck up to 199 inches for seven grand. Yes, I know. That's a lot of money. But so are deer leases, fuel, corn, feed, all that stuff. It adds up. So, if you want a no-hassle whitetail experience at a beautiful ranch that's been in the Leverett family since 1892, then go to stillwatersranch.com. Tell Clayton I sent you. He'll take good care of you. That's thestillwatersranch.com in Lano, Texas. Gaia del Cielo was a warrior born in heaven, so the legends say. His wings, they had been broken. He had one eye rolling crazy in his head. It fought a hundred fights And the legends say that one night near El Suego They fought Cielo seven times Seven times he left Brave Roosters dead Good morning, good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond Gallo del Cielo, one of my all-time favorite tunes there Kicking things off for us on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoors show brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I'm Cable Smith, your host, and it is great to be here talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors and all that implies with you fine folks today. Thank you for sharing a part of your weekend with me, or if you're tuning in via our iTunes feed or our website uh, where we've got every show saved as a podcast. Heck, I don't care how you're listening, just as long as you are. It means a lot to me, that is for sure. The show is for you guys and gals, and we've got a good one lined up for you today. I guarantee you that. So you know what to do by now. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of your beat-up old Stanley Thermos. If it's like mine, it's got mud caked on there from the 2012 duck season. Next, grab that camp stool and pull it up a little closer to the fire here because we've got a lot to get into. And off the top... We'll be joined by Linda Powell of Mossberg Firearms. Uh, We'll take a walk down memory lane and revisit the history behind a shotgun that ultimately changed the course of modern hunting as far as from the late 80s, even on through today. I mean, this is something that I use, you probably use or have used, uh, but I'm not, we'll just leave it as a tease there, but uh, you won't want to miss it because more than likely you've got one of these shotguns in your gun safe. If not a Mossberg, then for sure, uh, you know, a competitor's version of this shotgun. Uh, But we'll get into that more here in just a little bit. Uh, Then we will talk some bass fishing with our friend and longtime guide, Charles Whited of Barefoot Fishing Tours. Uh, We'll discuss the post-spawn pattern that a lot of these bigger fish are in right now. Trying to stay cool, but still... You know, feeding pretty heavily. Charles will tell us where he's finding them. And my goodness, is he on them right now, having cashed a first-place check in each of the last four weekly tournaments he's fished in. Uh, Also, he's spent a lot of time down at Falcon lately. Looks like that fishery is on the mend. So cool stuff coming out of South Texas on that front. Anyway, we will tackle all that and probably a whole lot more with Charles coming up here in just a bit. Then. Unless you've had your head stuck in the sand for, gosh, the last year, uh, you're probably cognizant of the positive CWD tests 
that came out of a Medina County breeding facility. Uh, the whole Texas whitetail deer industry was flipped upside down and just really looking for direction. Texas Parks and Wildlife was put in an awkward position, having to come up with some emergency regulations. But here we are a year later, and Texas Parks and Wildlife and the Texas Animal Health Commission have been jointly working on this project. Well, they finally released the new regulations by which the deer breeding industry will be operating under. So we'll get the reaction and thoughts from uh, kind of both sides of the fence because Texas Wildlife Association CEO David Yates will be here during the third segment. We'll get the TWA's thoughts on the regs. And, uh, and then Patrick Tarleton, the executive director of the Texas Deer Association, will jump on with us during the fourth segment. And so we'll uh, step across the fence and, and try to see things from the private property and uh, landowner's perspective uh, when it comes to the deer breeding industry, when Patrick jumps on with us here at the bottom of the hour. So uh, it's going to be a great show. Like I said, extremely uh, interesting to say the least. Um, let's go ahead here, take care of a couple other orders of business. How about a Lone Star Beer prize pack giveaway? I've got a Lone Star Beer cap, koozie, and uh, newly added addition to our uh, giveaway stash, uh, Lone Star Beer handkerchief. So uh, third person to text in the word whitetail, that's whitetail to 214-289-7807. Text in whitetail to 214-289-7807, and you could win the Lone Star Beer prize pack. Hell, if I could send you a case of Lone Star Beer, I'd do that as well, but I think I might get in trouble. So uh, we'll send you the prize pack. Also, don't forget that our July photo of the month contest is going on right now. I don't even know what the prize is going to be, to be honest with you, but, you know, based on our track record, I'd say it's going to be a gun, a bow, a fishing pole, or a pair of Costa sunglasses or some other awesome prize. So send in your best outdoor photo, a hunting or fishing image to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Better yet, send it to us on social media. That's a lot easier for me. And you can do that uh, on Facebook or Instagram, just we're at Lone Star Outdoors Show. You can find us very easily. Uh, so send in your photo. And then our 12 monthly winners from 2016 will square off at the end of the year for a chance to join me on our trophy grand prize hunt package. One of y'all is going to get to hunt trophy access deer or black buck with me down at the lovely Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. So another great grand prize hunt package offered up by Coons Canyon Ranch. Uh, before we take a break, this segment, by the way, brought to you by ScentBlocker. And if you go to ScentBlocker.com, you can find their full lineup of hunting apparel, attractants, scent control formulas, and you'll save 10% off your entire order if you use my promo code LONESTAR10. And you can find it all right there at ScentBlocker.com. Let's take a break. Up next... We'll discuss a shotgun concept that when it was released in 1988 changed the game as far as modern hunting is concerned. All that coming up only on DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Lucky one, I'll always be the lucky one As long as you are close to me Like a gambling man 
market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas, Louisville, Bobcat of Fort Worth, and Bobcat of Longview. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. LSC Trailer Sales offers a full line of utility trailers, from small single-axle trailers to heavy equipment trailers, ATV trailers, car haulers, landscape trailers, cargo trailers, truck beds, and more. They can special order a custom trailer to fit your needs and have the ability to customize standard models in-house. LSC Trailer Sales is here to assist you with any questions that you have about trailers. Call 940-566-1133 or visit lsctrailersales.com. That's lsctrailersales.com. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Texas time traveling. Corey Morrow bringing us back on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoors show brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I'm Cable Smith. Uh, thank you so much for being here as we are all set to do a little time traveling ourselves. And I will expand on that here momentarily. But first, this segment of the show is brought to you by Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue, where you can stop in after the hunt for breakfast, lunch, or dinner and enjoy Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue and also STI Guns, based out of Georgetown, Texas. Um, okay, speaking of guns and time traveling, I'm always fascinated to go back and take a look at where we came from to where we are today, specifically firearms that you know change the course of how we hunt in the field or you know like the 1911 pistol developed by John Browning over 100 years ago. That's the one that I have on me today, <laughs> and it still is the most popular pistol platform out there. And then you have guns that change the course of world history as far as winning wars. Uh, but one that I want to get into this morning is actually a, a very common one among waterfowlers, turkey hunters, deer hunters. Uh, but it's one that I don't think a lot of folks know about as far as when it evolved and how top secret it was. So anyway, here to shed some light on the history and what all went into creating the first three and a half inch chambered 12 gauge shotgun, it is my pleasure to welcome back our old friend, Linda Powell of Mossberg Firearms. Thanks, Campbell. It's always a real pleasure to visit with you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, it's great to have you. And, uh, you know, before we get into today's uh, topic of conversation, I know that uh, bear hunting, spring bears is your favorite thing to do. And uh, you went on, uh, you had a couple hunts this spring. Uh, how did all that pan out for you? I, I did. I was really fortunate. I, I traveled back to Vancouver Island, and I hadn't been there in over 10 years. And 
though I wasn't fortunate enough to actually get a bear. I had uh, three other guys with me, and they all took bears. But it was just Vancouver Island is just beautiful, and we mm. saw quite a number of bears. It just didn't all come together for me. Yeah. Um, but the great news is because I still have a tag to fill, I'm going to head back this fall and see if I can uh, can be successful. And I made an annual trip to Alberta, but my primary focus was actually for bison and uh, had a bear tag as well, but uh, we just didn't run across any bears this year. So hmm. I hate to say it, but uh, no no bears added to the uh, to the trophy room this year. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I spent uh, I spent ten days in Colorado um, chasing mountain lions, and it was a dry ground hunt. But you know the thing about dry ground hunting, it's hard to do if you don't have any dry ground. So <laughs> it rained, sleeted, or snowed on us every day I was there, except for the first day, and it just uh, you know, it was one of those deals where I, I called the wife begging, hey, can I please extend the hunt by a couple of days, you know? I know you've got all three kids, but I don't, <laughs> if, I, if I stay, then, you know, I won't have to come back. And she, she goes, okay, well, I'm not an idiot. If you get a mountain lion, there's going to be another hunt next year. You're going to go hunting. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so, but anyway, yeah, so got, got the big goose egg on that one. But, uh, yeah, like much like yourself, I'll just be going back in December to do it in the snow. So, yeah. And, you know, that's just part of it. We know every hunt can't be successful and still uh, great memories, and it just makes you look forward to the next time you can get back out in the field. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Um, Well, you know, what I wanted to talk about today is some of the innovation that people might not be aware, um, you know, Mossberg's provided over the years, specifically one that really changed the game uh, in the late 80s when it comes to waterfowling. When I'm talking about the three-and-a-half-inch chamber, uh, that actually was introduced, I believe, in 1988 when the uh, 835 came out, and obviously at the time it was groundbreaking. The weird thing here is that Federal and Mossberg kind of came out with this together, uh, and and you told me off there a little bit about the history behind that, but uh, we'd love to hear that for sure. Sure. You know, and you mentioned it. One of the things I think that surprises people is how innovative Mossberg is. We have over 100 patents for different developments on guns, both uh, shotguns and rifles. But I think this truly is one of the most significant ones. And as you, as you know, back in the, uh, I guess it was the late 80s, um, you know, lead was banned for waterfowl use. So people were very, very unhappy with steel shot. Mm-hmm. and uh, manufacturers started looking at options, and many companies were just deciding to build 10-gauge guns. Mm. And and Mossberg looked at that as well, and, you know, we were giving that some consideration, but we felt that a 10-gauge was very limiting uh, in the sense that you can't use it for as many applications as you could, you know, 12-gauge guns. You're not going to go dove hunting with a 10-gauge. <laughs> most, yeah. most sane people wouldn't. Right, right. <laughs> but it just so happened at the time... Um, I guess Federal had been working on developing a 12-gauge, 3.5-inch load, but obviously they needed a a firearms manufacturer to partner with them because it wouldn't do much good to bring out the ammunition if there wasn't a shotgun. Mm -hmm. And they had been working with with Browning, but I guess somewhere along the line, Browning decided that they really wanted to look at the Mm 10-gauge, and so they bowed out of the project. They probably want to redo on that deal. (laughs) (laughs) That might be one they regret. (laughs) Yeah. But it just is one of those deals, and I think it shows the industry and the way it works. Uh, One of Mossberg's VPs at the time was attending the NASGW show, which is a wholesaler show. Mm -hmm. 
and heard about this project that had been ongoing with Federal and Browning and went over and started the discussions with Federal. And then he came back to the office and made a proposal to Alan Mossberg, who at the time was the, the president's company, and said, you know, we should be looking at a 12-gauge, 3.5-inch gun. Um, you know, we've already got a great platform with the 500, and it handles 2 and 3 quarter and 3-inch. So, you know, we, if we could take it where that same platform could handle 3.5-inch guns, we would be able to offer truly the most versatile shotgun platform out there. So conceptually, uh, you know, Alan Mossberg bought into it, and Federal and Mossberg started working together on the project. So in 1988, the first 3.5-inch 12-gauge shotgun was introduced, and that's our 835 Ultramac. Yeah, and that's the, uh, actually the gun that I shot my first turkey with. And, and, and I think that the gun still... I mean, for, for goose hunters and turkey hunters, I mean, it's the one that I grab out of the gun safe, you know. I mean, it's just, it's, it is just a habit, and I don't see it changing. No, and I, I think there's some things there, too, that make it such a great gun. Um, you know, one of the things some people may not realize, too, is the barrel on the 835 is actually overboard. So it is that we've increased the diameter to the bore size of a 10-gauge, and you go, I'm sure people say, so what difference does that make? Well, it does a couple of things. First of all, it helps reduce recoil, so it makes the gun more comfortable to shoot. Mm -hmm. But we've also found that it improves patterns. So you, you nailed it right on the head when you say it's a go-to gun for turkey hunters and waterfowl hunters because that 12-gauge, 3.5-inch uh, that's been overboard just delivers unbelievable patterns. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it really just makes it a, a great all-around uh, hunting gun, yeah. you know, regardless of, of what, uh, you know, what you're chasing. And that was a big complaint about the three-and-a-half-inch chamber is that, you know, people are saying, well, you're getting, you know, you're getting a faster, uh, you're getting more feet per second. Yes. And mm -hmm. you're getting more pellets, which is, which all became necessary because folks were, were crippling so many birds when they had to start shooting steel shot. And uh, and the federal uh, ban was actually in 91, but I think some of the states had already started, you know, moving towards uh, that, and the writing was on the wall. Right, so, right. So, you know, uh, Mossberg and federal, obviously, ahead of the curve on that front. Um, but so that, that tight pattern is important, and I'll tell you what, I mean, I used to, when I first started goose hunting seriously, I'd see these uh, old-timers literally pass shoot at geese 70 yards up in the air. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what in the world are they doing? I was like, they're never going to hit those birds. And, uh, you know, sure enough, they they told me they, you know, they were all shooting three and a half inch and putting 15 feet of lead on them, and they were dropping them. And I was, I, since then, I was like, well, if I'm going goose hunting, I, there's no way I'm taking anything other than a three and a half inch. And uh, the 835 has, has been a staple since then. But let's talk about how top secret this project was because <laughs> – I understand a lot of the employees at Mossberg didn't even know about it. That That's true. You know, one of the things in the industry, you obviously don't want your competition to know what you're working on. So we had kind of internally dubbed the project a 10-gauge. And <laughs> so all of the drawings, all of the marketing materials, everything was marked with the 10-gauge project. And you got kind of go, what difference would that possibly make? But many firearms manufacturers utilize outside vendors for parts and pieces, you know, whether it be screws or, you know, different parts. And, you know, if you started sharing with them 
the project and what you were doing, there was the likelihood that your competition would hear about it and, uh, you know, maybe try to get a jump on it. So everyone assumed, and it kind of leaked out. So when we showed up at the SHOT Show in 1988, everybody assumed that Mossberg was going to be announcing a 10-gauge mm-hmm. gun. And lo and behold, they unveiled the uh, the first 12-gauge, 3.5-inch. Um, so, you know, it's kind of interesting that, you know, it has to be that top secret. Huh? Yeah. Wow. And you told me, uh, that actually, there's not a, a lot of employees left at this point uh, that worked on the project. But uh, one of the uh, higher-ups, I guess, uh, actually was in quality control back in the day. And, and uh, you mentioned that he about shot his shoulder off testing <laughs> these things. Yeah, I, I spoke with him about it. Joe Bartosi, who's actually our uh, executive vice president and general counsel, mm-hmm. was in quality control at the time, and he said he got the honor of, <laughs> the shooting, honor. <laughs> the, uh, of shooting the first rack of 835s and, uh, with those three-and-a-half-inch loads. And his comment was that his shoulder was sore for over a month. So mm. uh, he remembers that project very well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that, there's a difference from one hunt to uh, just having to do it uh, basically all day, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And there's something about shooting it in the field versus shooting it at the range. Uh, huh. you, you definitely notice it a lot more at the range. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, a, a lot has changed since then. I mean, now every uh, manufacturer has, a, seems like a semi-auto. Obviously, uh, Mossberg has a, a 935 mm-hmm. chambered in uh, three and a half inches. And... Uh, I don't know if um, at the time, obviously it was groundbreaking technology, but I mean, were sales, uh, I mean, did they go through the roof immediately or did it take a while for people to buy into it? Well, I think that's part of the concern when you introduce a new project like that, you know, with with something that no one had any experience with. It it was gradual, but obviously it caught on because, as you said, uh, other manufacturers within a matter of just, you know, the next few years started adding their own three and a half inch versions. And then, of course, part of that is ammunition becoming more readily available. A lot of times people are a little hesitant to buy a new caliber or gun, Mm -hmm. um, you know, because they're concerned about ammunition availability. But now we have such a wide selection of three-and-a-half-inch loads, too, that um, obviously the popularity of it grew significantly from 1988, and it continues to to be a popular uh, popular choice and, and particularly in the waterfowl in the in the turkey hunting markets yeah and, and i imagine uh it's probably a go-to for not for many texans because we don't have you know shotgun specific deer seasons but i'm sure that uh you know three and a half inch pump shotguns are, are taken into the woods up north um, during whitetail season pretty frequently Sure, and and you know you even see some predator hunters with shotguns too. And oh yeah. yeah. So uh, you know it does give you quite a few options mm-hmm. for versatility. And, and one other thing, you know, no one sees ten gauges around anymore. So I imagine that uh, this gun really had a lot to do with uh, the ten gauge going the way of the dinosaur. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there too when you talk about that. Again, uh, you know the ten gauge had its moment, but I. I think there's no question that, uh, you know, the 10-gauge kind of fell to the wayside once people realized the versatility of the 12-gauge gun when you could shoot two and three-quarter inch, three and three and a half inch. And, you know, I, I guess today if you go in the store, I'm not even sure who still is manufacturing a 10-gauge. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> and here we are, you know, uh, getting close to 30 years later. The choices in shot shells today to truly make a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Yeah. Well, a lot of history and, and, you know, 
I just uh, I thought you know this is something we've never talked about, and I was just interested as a as a hunter and and more so a waterfowler because I don't I don't think if we had never seen that uh, lead shot ban, I don't know if the three and a half inch chamber would ever have come around. Um, but uh, I thought it, I thought it'd be a cool thing to to discuss and and take a look at you know how we got to where we are today from where we came from. And I think that's true. And again, I always like to you know let people know that Mossberg really has been an innovative company over the years, and uh, you know that's something that they don't always realize. So yeah. this is just, just one of many. So maybe sometime down the road we can uh, we can touch on some other innovations from Mossberg. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And for anyone that doesn't know, uh, most of y'all's uh, production is now done right here in Texas. That's true. I, I'd say pretty close to 95%. We have a facility in Eagle Pass, Texas, and so... Shotguns, rifles, rimfires are all coming out of there. So, uh, yeah, not only are American-made, but uh, primarily Texas-made. Mm-hmm. Well, we are certainly glad to have Mossberg in the Lone Star State. Linda, thank you so much. We'll do it again soon because we'll be giving away a Mossberg 12-gauge 935 semi-auto coming up here in August. That's right. So we'll, uh, we'll chat again soon and talk about that, uh, that next giveaway. Perfect. Well, Linda, happy hunting, and thanks again. Thanks, Cable. I appreciate it. You bet. There she goes, our good friend Linda Powell of Mossberg Firearms. And I'm curious, I'd love to get your feedback. How many of you guys and gals still hunt with a three and a half inch chambered 12 gauge? I know I do. If I'm chasing turkey or geese or sandhill cranes out in West Texas, I just love the knockdown power. You know, it's that simple. More powder, more pellets, for me, has always equaled more dead birds. So post your comment on our Facebook page, just Lone Star Outdoors Show. If you do post a comment related to today's interview, uh, you'll be entered to win a Mossberg Firearms cap, T-shirt, and sticker. So cool stuff there. Uh, That segment, by the way, brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. Here's the cool deal. You can save 20% off your next night vision or thermal scope if you use my promo code, which is just Lone Star. When you're talking about a scope that could cost you two or three thousand dollars, you're saving a lot of money. So check it out, PulsarNV.com. They continue to set the gold standard in night vision and thermal imaging scopes. I've got one, absolutely love it. It is hell on coyotes and hogs. I guarantee you that. Uh, okay, let's take a quick break. Up next, we'll change things up, grab our rods and reels, and head out to the lake with our old buddy Charles Whited of Barefoot Fishing Tours. Big schools of largemouth have now moved into their post-spawn haunts. Charles tells us where to find them and how to catch them after the break, only on DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show. The Lord loves the drinking man, saying I won't get dog to the promised land. I hear that he could turn the water Cable Smith here for Wildcat Lending, where they offer 90% investor financing for investors flipping houses. That's purchase price plus renovation. Unlike borrowing from a bank, they offer great terms and fast closing. There's no income verification and you deal directly with the owners. Wildcat Lending is lending money all over Texas and no other lenders can compete. Call 972-525-4777 or visit wildcatlending.com today. Wildcat Lending, hard money, made easy.
If you're looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW, then Three Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guide Scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. It would be one for the money, one for the show, one for good measure when we go. Once in a lifetime, one in a million, one for the road in case we get the feeling. That's our good buddy Nate Kip, One for the Road's the name of that tune. I'm Cable Smith, by the way, welcoming everybody back to Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoor Show, brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. Thank you so much for letting me ride shotgun with you today as we are celebrating the outdoor lifestyle. We're about to get into a little fishing discussion, specifically what are those big largemouth bass that drive us all absolutely insane up to right now as they're moving into their post-spawn haunts, uh, trying to cool off for the summer. But before we rip some lips with Charles Whited of Barefoot Fishing Tours, this segment is brought to you by Port Aransas, Texas. My favorite fishing destination, actually just my favorite vacation destination, period. Been going down there for, gosh, like 15 years now. You can't beat the views, the beautiful blue waters of the Gulf of Mexico, miles and miles of surf. And one of my favorite things is the restaurants will cook up your catch right there on the beach at sundown. So to come fish and play Texas Island style, go to portaranses.org. Well, without further ado. Let's go ahead and bring on our old friend, a longtime bass fishing guide, tournament angler. I mean, he's won more trucks and boats and deposited more checks uh, from winning tournaments than you can shake a stick at. It's my pleasure to welcome Charles Whited back to the show. Heck yeah, glad to be back, man. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah, it is a it's a pleasure. And I guess last time uh, we uh, we spoke actually was in person. Uh, myself and a, and a buddy had a chance to come down to uh, 
Town Lake and go fishing with you, uh, which was a pretty cool deal right there in the middle of Austin. Uh, kind of, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's, a little uh, lake with some big fish. They're in there. We just hit where there was too much moving water. It's it's finally getting back to normal. It, it's uh, We've had so much rain, they just keep pumping it. You, there's limited spots on fishing, but now we're we're uh we're getting there we're back to normal the flow's right again right on awesome awesome well and let me ask you what about that lake because it is you know it's a relatively small body of water uh but you know it's kicked out well um i mean obviously one of your anglers caught the lake record a share lunker um out town lake so why is that fishery so good as far as producing big bass well you know we we had Lake Austin that was really good, and then they killed all the hydrilla. Mm-hmm. And Town Lake's below Austin, and it, it kept its mill full, and uh, it just gave them bass somewhere to hide to get big. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's the same same fish out of Austin, Town Lake. They're all in the same area. It's just getting a little age on them, and, and wherever there's hydrilla or mill full or anything like that, they can put some weight on them without having to travel far to eat. And that was Town Lake. I mean... It, they were just they don't have to go far to get their food and they were putting weight on them and there's some big ones in there and it's actually a slot lake uh-huh. you know that so therefore you know you know all these fish get you know catch and release pretty much and that's that's the good thing about town lake uh-huh. and and there's some guadalupe bass in there too you caught a really nice one the day that we were out yeah they're, we've been catching you know one or two a trip and uh there are some big ones in there i mean that could be a place where you can catch a three or four pounder eventually one of these days they're there i mean it's putting in front of them i know that's one lake that has them yeah yeah and i don't know what the state record is but obviously the guadalupe bass is the the state fish of texas but all i know is i sure like eating them little dudes we try to get them out of the lakes ourselves (laughs) (laughs) they're good eating man yeah you know they we got a we got a Lake Travis that's plumb full of them, and we have a guad tournament every year. And after the tournament, we have a huge fish fry, you know. And it, it's a neat deal, quad fest, and it's mm. a it's a really neat tournament. They're good to have, but on the other hand, they really compete with the large mouth, and it's it's best to get some of them out of there. Sure, sure. Those fish uh, can be found, you know, throughout most of those rivers in the Texas Hill Country, and they don't get quite as big uh, in in that scenario, but. Uh, very popular for fly fishermen as well. Yeah, that we got the Colorado River that runs through, like from there down through our bass trap, and man, those guys catch them on that that little river chain too. I'm fixing to get a a jet boat myself and start guiding over there eventually. And just you know, there's some big ones over there, and good largemouth too. So yeah, looking forward to that. Kind of some new water. You better uh, you better find out what the state record is. I don't want to see you catch a. a potential state record and not know about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah no doubt we have to research that a little bit more when we yeah yeah um well cool and, and i know that uh you were i guess you went down to falcon recently as well huh yeah i mean you know i i still got down at falcon i i quit for a while because the, the drought got so tough and now the lake is uh fishing really good you know and the big fish are actually back we had a lot of big fish so i do two and three day trips down there um, mm-hmm. but man, we caught, I think in three days, we had 30 fish over five pounds and this, you know, you're talking June That's yeah. Good fishing. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I actually just, uh, got a press release this week from, uh, BASS magazine and, and they 
released their top 10 uh, reservoirs or bass fisheries in the United States. Toledo Bend, right there on the Texas-Louisiana border, was number one. And I think Falcon was back in the top 10 after uh, a couple of years of being MIA just because of the drought, but they're uh, hanging in there at, like, number eight. Yeah, that's good. And and it, and it's true. It, it'll be back up in the top five here pretty quick. You yeah. know, it, they're there. It's, you know, everybody thought they're gone. They're gone. A lot of them are, you know, a lot of them die in these tournaments. You just can't help it. And, you know, just some people keep them. But, you know, I, I was fishing there last year, and I'm like, man, this lake, is it's downhill. It's done. It's going to take four or five years. And then you go back the next year, and, and, like, where did they come from? I mean, just boom, they're just there again. So it's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad I was wrong on that one. <laughs> yeah, and, Charles, you know, last time you were on, we talked about how sight fishing is really a big part of, you know, your bag of tricks every spring as far as, putting yourself and your clients on double-digit size, you know, lunker quality fish. Um, but this year, sight fishing was MIA. And I don't know if you were aware, but we had the worst share lunker season in <laughs> recent memory as far as, I mean, only two 13-pound bass were even entered into the program this season. And I know. Usually there's between it, 10 and, you know, 18 or 20. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those deals, you know, we caught two 12s out of Town Lake, and then there was a kid that broke, that had a 13. I don't know if it was that may have been one of them. I don't know if he registered it. It was right before it, but you know, it, it is. It's tough. It was a tough year. It, our our reason is the hydrilla's gone out of Lake Austin. You know, they the lake's messed up. But mm-hmm. other than that, I I don't know what happened at all these other lakes. It should have still happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's crazy. You would have thought the conditions were ideal, but I don't know. I guess uh, maybe with all the the new water, it just a lot of it was probably pretty murky and stirred up and. The bass obviously were probably still there, and anglers might not have been able to see them. Well, and I think what happened this year and what I saw, it was actually the worst sight fishing year for me too. But we had such a warm winter. I think these fish were spawning January, December and January while most of us were still hunting. Mm-hmm. And I really think that's what happened this year, especially especially where I am, central and south. Yeah. I mean, it's... I was catching fish that looked spawned out in, in February, so it's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. Warm winter, that they don't have to wait till everybody's March, March, March. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But these big fish, man, they will do it early, and and you miss it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you will definitely miss the boat. While we're sitting in a deer blind. That's right. Yeah. I mean, we have a warm winter. You better better get your boat. Get yeah. that stay built in it and start running in December because it, it's going to happen it's, I think I'm just going to shoot the first deer that walks out and then get back on fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about what's going on right now. You've been on fire. You all have won, you and your partner have won, I think, what, three tur- three or four tournaments in a row on Canyon. Just, uh, yeah, that's crazy. Beating yeah. people by we, seven and eight pounds, you know. <laughs> yeah, we got these Thursday night deals, but we draw, you know, 40, 40 boats. And, man, we have just got on a school of fish. We we won four in a row with seventeen plus pounds, and uh, it it's all these lakes are just going to fish good with all this new water. It's it's not just Canyon Lake; it's Travis, it's Buchanan, it's all these lakes are just going to be good next year. We're mm-hmm. thank the Lord that we got a lot of rain, but it's going to be a good one. It's definitely going to have a. We got a couple of years under our belt with water levels now. Yeah, well, in the last month, you guys have won. You know, four tournaments in a row uh beating people like we said they're coming in with eight pounds you're coming in with 17 so what's been 
the secret as far as finding these post-spawn fish? Well, Canyon Lake doesn't have a whole lot of grass. And what we found is, is it's called that skunkweed. It's real, it, it grows really, really shallow, only three or four inches tall. And I've, I've learned on my electronics to try to find that. And we found a couple patches of the short skunkweed and those crawfish, Canyon Lake is crawfish driven like crazy. Mm-hmm. And those crawfish love that stuff. Every fish we're catching is just, when it hits the deck, it's, it's spitting up orange. And I think that's a big deal is finding that skunkweed, any type of grass. If you can find it on a, on a lake, especially when there's not a lot of it, you're going to catch them. And so you're throwing, obviously, soft plastics? Yeah, you know, yeah, because they're, they're evening tournaments. So when it's real hot at 6 o'clock, we're, we're, we're fishing slow. And then as it gets closer to dark, I'll pick up the crankbait. And we've been catching key fish on the crankbait. And we've been slow reeling swim baits through it, too, and, and catching them. One thing about skunkweed where we're fishing, like if you throw a rig or something, it, it hangs up on the weight so bad, and then it gets on, up on the hook, and you just, you're just wasting your time. And it's really hard to fill a bite, even somebody that fishes every day, because it's so spongy. Hmm. Uh, we, we've definitely been throwing lighter rigs, you know, lighter Texas rigs or wacky stuff, and and just catching them. we got three or four little spots, and every time I'm out there, I put my hummingbird in use and side scan and really try to find another spot or two uh-huh. it had to be some type of relations to uh, a real soft sandy bottom and that's what's been going on with us where that grass is growing uh-huh. canyon has a lot of rock if you can find little guts or something that has mud growing in the back and that that skunk is going to start growing and that's okay that's well i'm going to need the to. uh Need you to text me those GPS coordinates when we get off the air. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's about 40 teams that want them right now over at Yankee. They're, yeah. It's pretty, they're like, man, I'm just following you next time. I'm like, God, please don't do that. <laughs> you know what? Nobody has, nobody's followed us yet. That's pretty cool, you know. Uh-huh. In my back of my mind, somebody beats me four times. I'm, I want to know what's up. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah just I out of curiosity, like, why is this guy kicking it. my butt every week, you know? When yeah. you're in it to win it and you get whooped four times, man, and you come in and, you know, we're, we, me and my fishing partner, we've fished that lake our whole lives. I mean, it, and we've never seen nothing this consistent mm-hmm. on Canyon or on, on anywhere. I mean, just, you know, if you go to Falcon, yeah, you're going to find 25 pound holes all, all the time. But when you got lakes that don't have a ton of big fish and you're still in June and July catching 17, 18 pounds in three hours, man, it's, you got something figured out and we're going to, we're going to ride it. Well, let me ask you this, just to kind of wrapping things up here. Uh, temperatures are, I mean, we're, we're about to get a, a good stretch of 100-degree days, you know, uh, for the next probably six weeks or so as we move into July and August. What is going to change as far as, you know, these fish, how they're going to start behaving uh, when temperatures are just, you know, scorching hot? And that window gets really, really small. And a lot of times what I'll do is I'm, I – Pretty much now, I run four or five-hour trips, and that's it because mm-hmm. the window is so small. But you get you get out there and get started about 5:30. Get get 30 minutes a night fishing in, and then and you you know get off by 11, and you you, you know you can still catch them. And there's a good topwater bite going on early in the morning still. It's just the window is so small. You need to get up early, get out there, and get off, and drink lots of water too. It's it's been bad. What's your favorite, uh, or what top water is resulting in the most blow-ups right now? Man, 
uh, I like throwing a Rico pop, so, something popping. But, uh, you know, the, the old chug bug is hard to beat. A buzz bait. We're, we're still fishing a little bit of flooded stuff with a lot of stick-ups and a little, little white quarter-ounce white buzz bait is, is hard to beat, too, right now. Because they're still feeding on shad early. You know, yeah. the, the shad are kind of still schooling up. And all the shad we got right now are about the size of a dime. It's really, really, really small. Hmm. And uh, so, and I'm I'm putting a feather on back of every top water I'm throwing. And I think that's getting the bite more than anything is having that feather on the back of these little poppers. But definitely smaller topwaters. I don't go no big spook or giant bait right now, you know, no whopper popper. The little whopper popper will catch them, but big whopper popper and all that, I, I'm I'm leaving it in the box till it, it cools down a little bit more. But you got to realize I'm guiding too, so yeah. you got to get the bite. Yeah. Well, and speaking of that, people can find your website, barefootfishingtours.com. And then uh, one other thing I did want you to have the opportunity to mention was um, – Y'all are about to start doing some serious dove hunting. Do you have day leases or season leases? I I got a man, mama. It's it's all going to be a day hunts, three day package, one day whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And I got a really good ranch in Throckmorton, Texas. And then I got some Brownwood and some around San Marcos. But we're doing package deals: two nights lodging, meals, and four hunts for four hundred. And if and if you want to just come out and hunt the day while we're there, it's seventy five dollars. And that, there's a lot of birds we're hunting over, big wheat fields and tree lines, and we got a bunch of tanks. So it, it's the last few years have been really, really good, and I don't see anything changing this year. All righty, and folks can find you at barefootfishingtours.com, also uh, Facebook by the same name. Charles, thanks again, and we will do it again soon, man. I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. So there he goes, Charles Whited of Barefoot Fishing Tours, our longtime friend. Uh, that segment, by the way, proudly brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy in Marion, Texas. Josh and Becky Gunther have been handling all my trophy mounts for a long, long time now. And, you know, if you're like me, you've probably been burned by uh, other taxidermists in the past. That all changed when I found Josh and Becky, whether it's a whitetail, a black bear, a trout, an axis deer, you name it, they take care of me. They give me a fast turnaround time, and they answer the phone when I call. You can't put a price tag on peace of mind. So check it out, Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. You can find them at gr8mounts.com. That's gr8mounts.com. Well, what do y'all say we take a quick break? When we come back, we'll tackle the new outline for CWD testing regulations that Texas Parks and Wildlife just released last week. So over the next couple segments, uh, we will hear the opinions and get the reactions from folks coming from both sides of the fence. And up first, it is David Yates, CEO of the Texas Wildlife Association. You're listening to DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show. I feel like myself again for a little while And the mountains breathe Just like they did before on a good day, I don't miss you anymore. Get 
Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. Rockwall Gun Club is North Texas' premier shooting facility, offering both indoor and outdoor ranges, including a unique 500-yard rifle range. If shotgunning's your thing, then check out the 18-station clay course. Opening summer 2014, Rockwall Gun Club is offering special introductory, family, and corporate membership rates for founding members. Located at 15950 State Highway 205, you can also visit rockwallgunclub.com or call 972-215-6902. Rockwall Gun Club, the private shooting experience. Howdy friends, Cable Smith here, and many of you have seen my pictures throughout the last hunting season of my Custom 7 mag. That rifle was built by Horizon Firearms. Horizon Firearms is a custom rifle builder here in Texas, located in College Station, and they specialize in extremely accurate custom rifles designed exactly the way you want them. Give them a call at 979-229-4664 or check them out at horizonfirearms.com. LSC Trailer Sales offers a full line of utility trailers, from small single-axle trailers to heavy equipment trailers, ATV trailers, car haulers, landscape trailers, cargo trailers, truck beds, and more. They can special order a custom trailer to fit your needs and have the ability to customize standard models in-house. LSC Trailer Sales is here to assist you with any questions that you have about trailers. Call 940-566-1133 or visit lsctrailersales.com. That's lsctrailersales.com. Are you looking for the perfect place to send your hunting buddy? To check out Tioga Retrievers. With over 20 years experience, Angie and Tim Becker can provide you with a field champion or a well-rounded hunting companion. Tioga Retrievers takes pride in catering to the needs of each owner and their dog. Conveniently located 45 miles north of DFW in Aubrey, Texas, Tioga Retrievers also offers day training and boarding. Call 940-440-0018 or visit them online at www.tiogaretrievers.com. That's T-I-O-G-A retrievers.com. Come on now, y'all didn't think I wasn't going to throw some Jimi Hendrix Star Spangled Banner in the mix today as we celebrate the 4th of July. I'm Cable Smith, by the way, welcoming everybody back to Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoors show. Brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I hope y'all are being safe out there. Don't drink and drive. Don't boat and drive this weekend. If you want to do something, you know, maybe live a little bit more on the edge. Hell, when I was a kid, we used to shoot each other with Roman candles. I'm not saying go do that, but hey, it's a lot better than drinking and driving. Uh, and damn, it was fun too. Uh, so, But I'm not advocating that, kids. Do not shoot your brother with a Roman candle. Mama doesn't like that. <laughs> anyway, we've got a lot of white-tailed deer discussion to get into here over the next couple segments. But before we do that, this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation to get plugged in with this great group of like-minded folks check us out at biggame.org okay well 
like I said uh, in the opening segment this morning, unless you've just been marooned on an island, uh, you're probably aware of the positive chronic wasting disorder tests that were found in a Medina County deer breeding facility last summer. Uh, Fast forward to today, nearly, actually just over a year later, uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife has released the new regulations by which deer breeders and hunting outfits that release bred deer into their pastures must abide by. Are they fair? Are they unreasonable? I honestly have no idea. But today, we're going to get the opinions of folks who represent both sides of the fence. And to start with, we'll check in with the CEO from the Texas Wildlife Association. A little bit about the TWA. It was founded in 1985, and its goal is to serve Texas wildlife and habitat while protecting property rights, hunting heritage, and the conservation efforts of those who value and steward wildlife resources. And they do that through three pillars, education, hunting, and advocacy, basically, you know, education. Uh, They have a great program within our public schools. They reached over 544,000 kids last year uh, from basically, you know, about the junior high age. Uh, And then they have a Texas youth hunting program taking over 1,500 first-time youngsters hunting last year. They also have the Texas Big Game Awards as part of the uh, hunting platform. And then they also focus on advocacy, both for wildlife and hunting. And that's mostly stuff that is done in Austin as far as protecting the rights of those who are invested in wildlife and uh, the outdoor lifestyle. So with all that being said, let's go ahead and bring on our next guest. He's the CEO of the Texas Wildlife Association. David Yates, thanks for being here. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on, Cable. It is great to visit with you. Um, you know, last year, the entire whitetail community was kind of thrown for a loop uh, as far as positive chronic wasting tests that came out of a, a Medina County breeding facility. You know, it's kind of been one of those deals where lives have been affected, business has been affected, but at the end of the day, Texas Parks and Wildlife has uh, a duty to protect the interest of not just, you know, landowners, but uh, every individual out there as far as, you know, our wildlife are, you know, it's a public resource. So that's right. Yeah. And they just released their new regulations as far as the format for um, the whitetail breeding industry. And, you know, as far as testing is concerned, uh, I know, that a lot of deer breeders favor testing. You know, they see it as something that's necessary because they don't want CWD um, being spread anymore than, you know, it already has, if it has really, um, to some extent, we don't know, but that's where the testing comes into play. But the thing that I keep hearing is they might, well, they're just upset with the level of testing. So why don't you, you know, kind of briefly walk us through uh, the the new format and how that is going to affect um, the whitetail industry moving forward. Sure. Well, you know, I, I can't really speak for how it's going to to affect the industry per se. I'm not in the business, uh, so I, I don't want to speak for for those men and women. But um, you know, a, after the emergency rules that were that carried us through last hunting season, after the initial detection, you know, one one of the you know, we heard two things loud and clear. Uh, from, from folks in the business. 
hey, we, we want to be able to use live animal tests, and we want a, a way to uh, avoid having to test animals that, that hunters harvest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, we want to be able to to blend some testing to, to get out there. And, you know, you made a comment about uh, you know, some breeders want, wanting to find the disease. I, I, I'd like to think that, that they all do, uh, but you're right, the, the, consternate, the point of consternation is – is how do we get there? What what's enough? Uh, what's too much? And you know the, the rules were uh, were crafted with a lot of input, a lot of hours, a very broad stakeholder group. And you know at the end of the day, there's there's really three ways to sample for for CWD. There, there's a live animal test, uh, which Texas is the first in the nation to to adopt. Uh, that's that's now available in these new rules. So there's a win uh-huh. for the the breeding industry. It seems like absolutely. I think it's a win for everybody. I mean, nobody uh, relishes the idea of having to uh, euthanize an animal to find out if it's sick. Uh, you know, we all we all love the wildlife, and and that that was just a, a rock and a hard place that that we were in um, at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Uh, the other, you know, two other ways. So the other way is to one of the other ways is to test uh, positive or excuse me, test animals that are uh, age eligible mortalities in in the pen. Uh, so you know, on average, about four and a half percent of uh, animals held in captivity, deer, you know, white-tailed deer held in captivity, die every year. So that's an animal that that dies anyway, and you can you can test that. You can pull a sample off of that animal. Uh, so that that's another component, and then the third option is is hunter harvesting. After a release, animal's been released, if it's shot, it can be sampled. Um, so the the new rules try to accommodate a couple of different pathways for different business models, different pen infrastructure, uh, volume of, of animals in pens for. For those operators to make a decision, do I want to incorporate some live animal testing, uh, or do I want to uh, use some hunter harvesting testing to supplement that that baseline of 80% of pen mortalities, uh, getting samples off of 80% of those. You know, back pre-CWD, that that baseline was 20%. Um, so, pen of 100 animals, five die. Twenty percent is one animal, so that that's not a. When you do the math on that, statistically, you know, there's some biometricians, folks who are much smarter than me, running these tables, and, and that's a very very low confidence of detection. Mm-hmm. But the you rules, said as low as forty percent, right? Well, actually, the the rules today uh, that were adopted by the commission a couple weeks ago, they uh, they combine for about a 40% confidence of detection in the first year. Yeah. Now, all these testing protocols, when you start to lay them over one another, they, they compound and, and the confidence of detection starts to starts to rise. And, and we cross that, that 50% threshold somewhere around year three. Uh, so that's a that's probably a, a comfortable uh, comfortable level for, for disease surveillance. Um, but at the same time, yeah, cause you can't just go in and say, Hey, if, unless you just shut down the industry altogether, you can't say, hey, we're going to test a hundred percent of the animals. 
because it's, that would just be crippling. That that's right. That's yeah. not fair to those folks. Uh, that that's that would be way too much. And sure. By hundred percent, that's all the animals, yeah. not just the ones that, that die in pens or or you know, or the live animal test. Everything, even though that's very expensive, you know that that's even the live animal test have some some deficiencies. But anyway, at the end of the day, the rules really tried to find that balance between providing business continuity to uh, to deer breeders and uh, and protecting the natural resource that belongs to the people of Texas. Now that, mm-hmm. That's the end of the day. That that's the that's the nexus that we were trying to seek. So and what's the happy medium? Yeah, I mean that's where that's where we were trying to get. Yeah. How do we protect a resource without without uh, putting good people out of work and, and you know, that, that's a that's a really tough spot to get to because uh, everybody has a different perspective on that. Um, so, you know, these stakeholders that spent all these months working on this, put all of our input into the commission and said, you know, that that's their job. That, that's that's their role. The governor appointed them to to make these hard decisions. So, um, you know, at the May meeting, uh, they heard a lot of feedback that you know, these rules were. Uh, were, were too much, and they hit the pause button and wanted to take some time to to consider all the all the comment and and feedback. They did that, held another meeting uh, with some commissioners and and stakeholders and agency staff, and uh, and they made some they made some adjustments based on that feedback in May, and then and then adopted rules at the June meeting, and, yeah. and there was a very broad. Uh, what I would call a groundswell of support for those rules at, at the June meeting uh, from from all over the conservation community. Yeah, and, and this was a joint effort uh, as far as you know the regulations are concerned between Texas Parks and Wildlife and the Texas Animal Health Commission. So it wasn't just TPWD doing it all on their own. Um, that that's correct. You know, the, I guess you could best characterize the relationship as Animal Health Commission being the the lead investigator and uh, the the veterinarian consultant to Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. So mm-hmm. they said, "Here's what works and doesn't work. Here's your confidence detections. Here's the types of tests that that work. Here's the scientific nuances." The Parks and Wildlife staff said, "Here's what we can administer. Uh, here's what's enforceable. Uh, here's what's practical." Uh, deer breeding industry uh, representatives said, here's what we'd like to see. Uh, here's some options we'd like to have. And you know, the, the wildlife, uh, non-breeding wildlife uh, representatives, such as TWA, among others, we just said, hey, we want something that all of you guys can work through that, that's, that, that's practical, but it's got to be... Uh, it's got to provide a, a confidence of detection that that everybody else in Texas, all the other hunters, all the other landowners, all the other wildlife enthusiasts can live with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and CWD is such a um, such an interesting animal because chronic wasting disorder doesn't rear its head until five years down the road. I mean, there's no um, external symptoms from an infected animal, and so looking at two white-tailed deer. One might be infected and look 
exactly the same as the one standing next to it that isn't infected. And that uh, that's really, I think, the like w- when you talk about EHD, that's a disease that can, you know, uh, really have an effect on a deer within 48 hours. It can be dead and look, you know, emaciated and uh, the same thing yeah. with like blue tongue and some other ones. There's, you know, there's telltale signs, physical symptoms that, hey, this deer's sick. And that's the problem with uh, CWD. Yeah, and, you know, what's, what's insidious about CWD is all an animal can be infected uh, and not not exhibit symptoms for, you know, three to five years, but it's contagious that whole time. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the prions that it sheds through bodily fluids, they can reside in soil, they can reside you know, in, in handling facilities and trailers, um, you know, plant matter. Um, so you can have this infectious material out there. The carcasses can, can hold that prion almost indefinitely. So, you know, it, it, it can get out there pretty widespread before you know it. And then, you know, once you've got it on the ground and it's endemic, then, you know, there, there's some pretty good science out there that shows, you know, while populations may or may not decline, there, there's some conflicting studies out there. But what, what does happen is the overall age uh, structure is compressed because animals just don't live as long. So mm-hmm. what does Texas look like without bucks uh, over five years old? Looks like Arkansas. <laughs> right, right. right. I mean, you got to, you know, back to the old days of shooting ratchet head 110s and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the you know, quality deer that, that people travel all over the world to come hunt, you know, that's the five, six, seven, eight-year-old deer. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, that's kind of the one of the one of the big threats economically, uh, much less the potential risk of, of overall population declines, which was very realistic and, and has happened in, in in other places. But again, there's there's always conflicting uh, circumstances out there on the ground. Sure. So. And of course, you know, I was joking about Arkansas, but I did want to say Arkansas, and think it, they were kind of uh, inspired by you know the positive test in Texas. Uh, they started testing and found out they had quite a bit of CWD they didn't even know about. Um, in Texas, to this point, we've still never had a non-captive white-tailed deer test positive for CWD. And you told me off the air uh, over the last 10 years, they have collected actually around 30,000 uh, samples. So it's not like they are not being tested. They're not being tested as much as, say, the captive deer. Um, but 30,000 is still, you know, it's a decent sample size. Yeah, so you know, you think about it this way, and it starts getting into kind of the the, the intricacies of it. But the sampling that was done over this last hunting season, from hunter harvested, voluntary hunter harvest, and road kills, and checkpoints, and all that kind of stuff, voluntary checkpoints all over the state. You know, that that was in the the non-captive or what we might call a free-range population, and they were carved into. 33 regional management units that are based on geography, habitat type, that, that kind of thing around the state. And they, they did polls, basically. They wanted 343 or 434, something like that. It was a statistically relevant number of tests. And that was met or exceeded in almost every RMU around the state. And so th- those are kind of co-mingled or, or mixed populations. So if there's CWD in it, you, you may find it, uh, if those 
animals are equally mixed and distributed, then then you're going to find it in that population. But if you look at pens, really a good argument could be made that that each one of those pens is kind of their own RMU. So uh, because they are isolated from from other animals, so you know on its face the number of samples in pens versus number number of samples in the uh, non-captive uh, population across the state are not too far from each other, a couple thousand more in the free range than, than in the captive. Mm-hmm. But it's it's all about the the science behind, you know, the statistics, the math of, of detecting that disease. If you've got these isolated populations that aren't commingling with each other, then you have to get into each one of those buckets. And, and again, you know, there's just, that's where it was found, so that obviously that's where the, uh, the focus is, uh, at least at this time, but, sure. you know, I, we're going to obviously continue to encourage hunters to submit samples, uh, across the state, just like we did last hunting season. And we'll continue to do that this year and, and hope that we get a, another real good, uh, aggressive sample of, of, uh, you know, white-tailed deer across the state. Cause you know, if we've got it, we need to find it. Yeah, uh, and maybe that's the silver lining here is, you know, it's unfortunate people, uh, deer breeders, a lot of deer had to be euthanized, you know, just uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife hands were kind of tied on that front. You've got an infected herd, whether it's in, you know, a pen or, or otherwise, obviously these were pen-raised deer, you've got to remove the threat because that's their, that's their, that's Texas Parks and Wildlife's job is to protect the resource for all of the hunters out there. Um and so they had to do that, but back to the silver lining, maybe we caught it before it, uh, you know, before it really took a hold. That that's my sincere hope. Uh, uh, it really is. That was, a, you know, it's a, it's a tough spot. It's a, you know, very classic rock and hard place kind of situation here for everyone, for the breeders, for Texas Parks and Wildlife, for for you and I, as folks who don't have, uh, you know, a let's let's just say a, a financial investment in it. But every bit of uh, an investment as far as our hunting heritage and, and our, our kids and their kids and so on and so forth. That, that's right. I mean, it, it affects it affects everybody in the state. Uh, it, it really does. You know, the white-tailed deer is a, is a linchpin for rural economies and, and uh, wildlife habitat and that financial uh, incentive to provide a habitat for deer. Well, that equals songbirds and pollinators and endangered species and clean air and clean water and, you know, the open spaces and natural treasures of the state. So mm-hmm. it really, you know, it's a transcendent issue. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, uh, David, great stuff today, man. I certainly wish we had more time to go into more detail, but uh, unfortunately we don't. If you want to give us real quickly, the uh, TWA website and social media outlets, Sure. So you you can find us on uh, uh, Facebook, and and I, I don't tweet or or Facebook, but our Facebook page is Texas Wildlife Association. I'm, I know we have an Instagram and, and Twitter handle as well, which you can find there. And then and then our website is texas-wildlife.org. Right on. Well, we certainly appreciate your time today. Look forward to doing hey, it again you. soon. Thank you. I appreciate your appreciate your attention to the mat to the matter. It's it's an important one and. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, Dave. Well, hey, thanks again. Take care. Okay, you too now. All right, there he goes, David Yates of the Texas Wildlife Association.
that segment, by the way, brought to you by Hercules Hunting Blinds and the Y.O. Ranch Headquarters preserving the tradition and history of the iconic Y.O. Ranch. I had the pleasure of hunting axis steer down there a couple weeks ago. Uh, I think you should do the same, to be honest with you. <laughs> so check them out at yoranchheadquarters.com to book your hunt today. Uh, let's knock out a quick break here when we come back. We'll get the reactions and thoughts of the CWD regulations uh, as far as the Texas Deer Association is concerned. And we'll do that with TDA Executive Director Patrick Tarleton up next right here on DSC's Lone Star Outdoors show. Cable Smith here for Lone Star Ag Credit. We all know land is a limited commodity. Let's face it, they're not making any more of it, but everybody wants it. Whether that's to build a house, hunt deer, or run cattle, allow Lone Star Ag Credit to help make that land your land. They've been doing it since 1917. For more information, visit LoneStarAgCredit.com to let them help you finance your piece of Texas today. We all love fishing, but private water fishing makes the experience even more enjoyable. Private means private, and when you reserve one of over 50 private lakes, that means you're the only one on the water. Lakes are stocked and professionally managed to grow big bass, and most have boats on site at no charge. You'll catch bigger numbers and bigger fish than on public water. Silence, solitude, and no crowds. It's a great way to introduce kids and grandkids into the outdoors. Visit privatewaterfishing.com to become a member today. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The System is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Hey, North Texas sports fans, this is Brian Spagnola, General Manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. I hear the rustle of the leaves as it'll buckle the breeze. My heart rate's rising with every beat. Then right in the open, bent down in the stream was the biggest damn deer that I'd ever seen. But I was ready. Yeah, I was ready. Deer Hunting Song is the name of that one from Kyle Hunt, bringing us back here on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoors show, brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players. I'm Cable Smith. Great to be here with you today. 
And it's no secret, when it comes to Texas, two things are the driving force behind hunting and fishing. Number one, white-tailed deer. Number two, largemouth bass. Uh, we've got a lot to get into still concerning white-tailed deer and CWD here today. But before we do that, this segment of the show is brought to you by Costa Sunglasses. You can customize your shades from the lens to the frame to the style any way you want them. Mix and match. Really put your own personal flair on your shades. And you can do that at CostaDelmar.com. Costa Sunglasses. See what's out there. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and bring on our final guest for today's 4th of July weekend broadcast. He is the executive director of the Texas Deer Association. It's my pleasure to welcome Patrick Tarleton to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, man, it's great to visit with you. And I know it's been a busy few weeks, a month, hell, year, really, for uh, the Texas deer breeding community and the whitetail community, uh, you know, as a whole. Sure. I, I think it's, it, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to imagine, but we, we found uh, CWD literally almost one year ago today. So um, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's been one heck of a year. No doubt. And, and how long have you been the executive director of uh, TDA? I stepped in in the middle of the hurricane. I, I have been yeah. there since August since August first. I have been the executive director of the Texas Deer Association. So mm -hmm. I can't I can't say that I didn't know I was what I was getting into, but I certainly can say that I never imagined it would be the magnitude that this is. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, you know, we're talking about a, an, an industry of, and maybe you know off, off the top of your head, how many millions of dollars a year? Nearly nearly one billion a year. So it's nearly one billion a year to the Texas economy, and it's about eight thousand jobs. And yeah. So, and and not only that, it's it's mostly rural, um, uh, mostly rural Texas. It, this is one of the largest economic drivers wildlife is to the to the rural economy in Texas. You know, the the major economic drivers in Texas for the rural economy are, are oil and gas first, obviously, and sure. probably wildlife after that. And so, it, it brings out both passion and money and so that when when you when you put both of those things into the mix it it tends to make for tough conversation yeah yeah well and i you know i told you uh earlier in the show we had david yates the uh he is the ceo of the texas wildlife association on good good and you know just to get both sides uh we want everyone to have an equal say um, but the, the 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 main talking point is the same it's you know if you don't place a value on wildlife there is no wildlife, and you know whether it's uh, a high fence operation or a low fence, it doesn't matter. Uh, the thing that drives conservation is money. Sure, sure, yeah. undoubtedly. I think I think the more we put a value onto the animals, uh, the more we put a value onto that heritage that that we so passionately believe in, the better it will be in the end. I, I think it's it, its quality will get so much better in the end. So mm -hmm. I'm excited you had David on, and look, I I know I know David shares the sentiment, but these conversations that we had brought out good, honest dialogue between both parties. And I, I think in the end, once the dust settles, it, it'll, it'll be better for us in the future. I think they got to air their grievances and we, we aired ours and it was better for, I think our, our economy overall, and certainly the relationship between industries will be better in the end. So I was, I was excited to get to serve with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the Texas Parks and Wildlife, in conjunction with the Texas Animal Health Commission, uh, released their uh, new outline for CWD regulations, uh, I guess it was last week. Um, right. What are the TDAs, let's say, um, 
were the things that you're most pleased with? And then fundamentally, what issues uh, did you guys take the most, uh, you know, fault with? Exception to, sure. Mm-hmm. I, I think first and foremost, you know, this is not an easy process. Um, Any time CWD is injected into the conversation, it it does have great magnitude. And so um, I, I think the thing that I'm, I think the thing that our industry is happiest with is now there's some certainty. You know, we we went through a 54-day shutdown yeah. last year, and then and then we got emergency rules and then interim rules, and now we've really got some certainty into the rulemaking process that we can live with into the future. Something that that people can go and build business models off of again. And I do think there's some mechanisms in there that are very livable for breeders. Um, the thing we're most happy with is. At the end of the 18-19 hunting season, um, there will be one model again for all breeders to have to comply with. If you test 80% of your eligible mortalities, then your movement qualified and can move deer to high fences. I think some of the things we're, we're, we're most concerned about is it does take us three years to get to that model. That was one of the things we had hoped to be able to do next year. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we, we have class systems now within the breeders. And we'd really hope to get back to just one operating class, basically selling an animal based on its health and genetics and care rather than what regulatory class you might fall into. Mm-hmm. And and so that was one of the things. And, and I, I will be honest, the other thing that's hard for us is um, this rulemaking has, has prohibited us from utilizing permits such as a triple T permit. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a really good management tool. And even if we were to move deer from a high fence to a high fence, um, we, we, we wanted the opportunity to be able to do that. We also have people that were in business, um, that had low fence releases that, that they, they, they had breeder deer and they would release them onto very large or uh, low fence tracks. Mm-hmm. And so they no longer have the opportunity to do that. And we had hoped to find a mechanism for them to do that. Even if it was an extra high level of testing, we had hoped that we could come out of it and and be different than every other state. Every other state does. They, they say you can only release breeder animals into a high fence preserve, right? And we had really hoped to not be like every other state. We had really hoped to um, come out of this with a, with a different mentality that um, the breeder deer could, could actually benefit um, other, uh, uh, the other wildlife out there. And, sure. and we certainly think they do, but I think that that's part of the things that we 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 did we didn't get in this rulemaking and so that that's okay we'll we'll live with that and comply and move on down the road i I think you're going to see the industry really seek to comply with these regulations um we have what's called transfer category one and transfer category two and you're going to see a lot of those breeders try to test up if you will utilizing live testing to um to get to transfer category one and that that'll be a benefit for everybody Mm -hmm. well let me ask you so when you talk about releasing pen raised deer into um, other, let's say, high fence places, or like you referenced a low fence situation, is all of that completely shut down until the eighteen nineteen season? No, no. So, so right now, it's a, a breeder. Or, yeah, there's different a, a, stru- a, different tiers, like you said. So that that's right. Uh-huh. So low fence releases shut down forever. There, Texas is now like every other state in the union, um, and there is no low fence release. Hmm. Um, the the, however the breeder still today can release into a high fence sure. pasture. So, okay. so you can still go out there and, and release and create a good business model, releasing and buying and selling from high fence pasture. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
And I, and, you know, I, I hunt uh, high fence, low fence, no fence. That's kind of the the motto of the show when we talk about whether it's white tail or exotics or what you know. Take pick your yeah. species. I don't care as long as you're doing it legal. I have just sitting here looking in the studio. I have animals from, uh, you know, black bear in Canada to. Uh, scimitar horned orcs and white-tailed deer off uh, South Texas high fence ranches. So it doesn't matter to me. Um, well, I, the the only thing I'm mad at is my mailman. I, my invitation got lost in the mail. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> right. No, listen. I you, you know, okay. One of the things that I've I've really um, become aware of is is there is this um, rhetoric that surrounds the the CWD is now the catalyst, but this fight of breeder deer versus wild deer, high fence versus low fence, et cetera. I think Texas would really do itself a big favor if it would take a step back and just realize that we have one of the greatest wildlife economies in the world, not just not just in the country, but in the world, because we allow people to hunt their way. We allow people to say, you go do it the way that you want, as long as it's legal, humane, and preserves the heritage that we all have fallen in love with, right? Mm -hmm. I think it would behoove all of us in the community to take a step back and say, you know what, if if a guy wants to raise his children um, shooting deer off of a thousand acre high fence pasture, those children shouldn't be stigmatized or, or labeled because they were shooting high fence deer. That That is that is really not what the purpose of all this is. And I I think we should all take a little step back and get back to the model of, of allowing hunters to do it their way, whether it's a long range rifle or up close with a bow. I think everybody gets the opportunity to hunt the way they've fallen in love with. No doubt. And I have never, uh, or I've yet to uh, taste a high fence deer that didn't taste every good, every bit as good as a low fence deer. So that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, as far as private property rights and, you know, as far as far as being a landowner, which I'm not, I, you know, I have a deer lease. I don't have a nice big ranch, though I wish I did, maybe someday. Um, but a, a deer breeder that I came across last week uh, down around Hondo, he kind of expressed his concern uh, over land value in situations where CWD has been found and, you know, property values per acre um, on those places for sure. And then also kind of the surrounding area have really plummeted. And so, that was his main talking point was, you know, I, I don't want the value of my property to be decreased um, because CWD was found, you know, 10 miles down the road. Sure. Uh, I, I think he's got a very, he, he's got a very good point there. And I, I, unfortunately we're still in the um, scare and rhetoric phase of CWD. If you look at some of the other States like Wisconsin and Colorado and New Mexico, where there is a prevalence of CWD, but their state has decided management and, and, and monitoring is better than stigmatizing it. And so those, state, those states have very prolific hunting communities. When Texas hunters go to New Mexico and Colorado to shoot elk and mule deer every single year. And those values haven't dropped in their land because they're not allowing CWD to stigmatize that property. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, we've done a really bad job of, of allowing a, a very, very, very low prevalence of a disease stigmatize um, land values, especially in the central Texas area. I think you're already seeing, um, we've had we've had real estate agents already coming to us and saying the conversation alone has started to diminish land values in that area. That's a really sad reality. I, I, 
I feel for that person, that landowner. I, I, I truly, I truly wish the conversation hadn't gotten there. I, I, I don't think we've reached the point of that yet. And yeah. I certainly don't think the disease reaches the point of that either. I think we're seeing other states that have been through this for 50, 60 years that have a very different model of than what we're doing right now. And I, I understand what Parks and Wildlife is doing. I, I may not agree with it, and I, but I certainly understand that their hope is that they can at least contain it in, in, in that one geographical area, much like they've tried to contain it out in West Texas. But, you know, we found the wild mule deer in, in Hartley County this year, and that, that was new. That's that's completely outside the contaminated zone that, that, that they had, the quarantine yeah. zones that they had out there. That's a new case. And we're going to have to – we're going to have to – start to understand that this disease keeps getting found further and further south and in wild populations if you look just to the northeast of us there's arkansas and the more they expand those those monitoring zones the more they're finding it you know they've they just found it in march that's what david was saying yeah uh yeah and and that's that's a completely wild deer herd that they don't have breeders there Mm -hmm. and so you know we're gonna we're gonna have to face the real facts of this disease and and even the state veterinarian has said it it could be endemic and that means naturally occurring. And so hmm. we need to, at some point, I think, I think the effort is, is diligent. Um, I think we should be trying to do anything we can to not spread disease. But I, I certainly think the rhetoric about the disease and, and the diminishment of private property values is that needs to go away. We need to get a handle on that very fast. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he was, you know, he was telling me also to kind of go along with that. He was like very open to testing he said maybe not to the extent that they're doing it but he's like we need to try to contain it so you know um as it was just interesting to to hear someone in the deer breeding community with uh you know just kind of talk about some of the ins and outs that we probably haven't discussed on the radio before because people don't want to talk about it um yeah you know you know it's interesting people don't want to talk about hey i'm worried my the property value of my my ranch is going to go in the crapper they don't want to they don't want to talk about that kind of stuff that's so, right. That's right. But he did, and uh, you know, it was interesting to get uh, his his thoughts on that. Um, let me ask you this, Patrick. As far as the live testing goes, did do you feel like that was a win for the uh, deer breeding industry? Yeah. Look, I think because uh, we're the first, know, first state to adopt that. Yeah. First, and you know, first first rattle out of the box. We that, that's exactly right. We were the first state. We D. Ellis and Andy Schwartz and and. Folks at Parks and Wildlife kept their promise in October when they told a, a group of uh, at the at the United States Animal Health Association meeting in, in Maryland they 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 kind of stood up and said we're going to be the first to do this and we're going to implement live testing. Those two organizations, in conjunction with with us, held a very big live testing symposium where we webcast it to to almost all 50 states and three other countries, if you can imagine that. Mm. But um, that look that that that's the turning point right and what i've told people is so now we have live testing using rectal and tonsil biopsies um and lymph node biopsies that is a huge win for the industry and and you know what is we allow technology and science to lead the way of this we'll have a blood test or a saliva test um soon and and that will be another way for us to kind of monitor and and you know I, i it was interesting that you say that there was a breeder out there that kind of advocated for testing i hear it all the time my, my guys are not afraid of testing mm-hmm. in fact my my guys say look we we sell a commodity we sell a product and that that product we want that product to be healthy and disease free and cared for 
we certainly don't want to give our neighbor some uh, a, a CWD. That's just not what we're out there to do. Yeah. And so it, as technology and this live testing becomes more prevalent when we have more veterinarians that can do it, and as we get those people trained and we have new technology come to the forefront, you're going to see testing become a regular day occurrence. I mean, you'll you'll have it where it is in, in other agriculture commodities like cattle where they test for TB at in movement and sales and, and auction barns. You're going to see that be uh, a prevalent test for us as well. When we go to sell an animal or kick an animal out to a pasture, you'll see that animal get tested. And that'll be the real big win for Texas is when we lead the nation to do that, I think we've really done something good there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, just kind of wrapping things up because we're running out of time. Personally, I'm just glad to see the industry running again and uh, the fine people who make a living in the Texas whitetail breeding and, and hunting community back on their feet. Uh, and like you said, the main thing is now we know where we stand and obviously uh, everyone's going to be playing by those rules and, and moving forward. Uh, I think it's only going to get better. I think you're right. And, and thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, you've been optimistic through the whole process. I remember talking to you after the convention last year and that we didn't, we didn't, we certainly thought there was a lot of doom and gloom out there. And I think we've turned the corner. I think we're all better for it. So no I look forward to have, I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Oh yeah. And we've got the, uh, the big event, the, uh, auction and, and banquet and, uh, it's all going down at the JW Marriott coming up here, uh, in August. I can't remember the exact weekend. That's right. August 11th through 13th. We have our, the, the, the biggest deer show in the country happens right there at the JW Marriott in San Antonio. You can go on our website to, to register or just stop by. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, and the website is TexasDeerAssociation.com. Y'all also have Facebook and Instagram going as well. Patrick, I uh, think the future is looking bright as we move forward, hopefully leave CWD behind us in the dust. But, uh, man, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, and we'll see you at the convention and deer auction in August. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Well, there he goes, Texas Deer Association Executive Director Patrick Tarleton. I give that guy all the credit in the world. I mean, to come in and take over the reins of the TDA under those circumstances, whew, that's not a, a responsibility that I would have wanted. I'll tell you that, but uh, he's done a great job. Uh, that segment, by the way, brought to you by Sendero Seed Company, Texas' premier seed company, offering anything and everything you need to keep a happy and healthy whitetail herd, including the Dr. Deer-backed Buck Forge Oats. Check them out at SenderoSeed.com today. Man, just looking at the clock, we've got to go. Got to get out of here. Uh, thanks to all of our guests, of course, Linda Powell of Mossberg Firearms, uh, then Charles Whited of Barefoot Fishing Tours, David Yates of the Texas Wildlife Association, and Patrick Tarleton of the TDA. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. We wouldn't be here without their support. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoors show. We'll do it again, same time, same place, next week. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. I'm yours to be